welcome back to the Bookshop Chronicles. My name is Brandy, and you have found a podcast that talks about books, the people who love books, and the business side of running an independent bookstore. So if any of these things appeal to you, you are in the right place. Welcome. So today we have a very fun conversation with a local author, and before I get to that, I want to answer two questions that I get asked quite often, and I thought, what better platform to answer them than right here on this podcast? So the first question that I get asked a lot is, Brandy, are you writing a book? Yes. Yes, I am absolutely writing a book. It is... Well, I don't even know what to call it yet. However, it is a book about my journey. It is a book truck story. It is a reader's memoir. And it is a it is a book with all the feels. I, I don't know how else to say that. And I'm also working on a side project, which is, well, hopefully it'll be ready very soon. But for all of you readers who are data hungry and you love to keep track of all of your things and you want to look back on your reading legacy, this is for you. When I was younger, I actually wrote a children's book and I am actually in the process of writing two other children's books that are book truck related. So yes, in answer to the multiple questions I get about, am I writing a book? Will I be putting anything out into the world that they could get their hands on? Yes, my friends. It is it is coming, but as every writer can tell you, it is a it is a struggle. It is an emotional dumping and a creative outlet that it takes some time. It, you cannot just whip the sucker out fast and get it done. You really dedicate to it. And in all honesty, when you're an entrepreneur, you don't have the same kind of time to dedicate as you would if you were just loosey-goosey, nothing else going on. Most writers have something else that they dedicate their time to. I run a bookstore, so <laughs> I have a lot of stuff going on. And the writing is part of the fun part of my life. And I have to discipline that time pretty closely. So yes, there are things in the works. It is a very satisfying thing to be asked. Every time somebody asks me, are you writing a book? I would love to read what you're going to write. When is it going to be out there? That is so encouraging to me because it means you think I have something to say that you want to spend your time reading. I hope this is true. I hope that these things that I'm putting together are going to be satisfying for you. I'm, I'm very excited about them. And there will be more information coming as I know more. But stay tuned, my friends, for now. I want to share a conversation with you with one of our local authors named Stella Teleria, who wrote the book Across the Wire. And, well, this is a super fun conversation. So anybody who is a budding writer, who loves to read diversely, who loves to review things creatively, this is a conversation you will want to pay attention to. So here we go. Here's my conversation with Stella. So Stella, it is such a pleasure to talk with you and to introduce you to our listening audience. So can you tell us a little bit about you and what it is that you do with your day? Uh, sure. First of all, thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's really a pleasure to be here and to talk with you. And all of my experiences with you have been so wonderful. And and you've been such a great support of uh, indie authors and local authors and uh, the bookish, the book nerdy community uh, in Edmonton, and it's 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 been really awesome getting to know or uh, knowing you through through uh, the the manner that I have been able to. Oh, thank you. That's so nice of you. <laughs> um, so I guess yeah, my name is Stella Teleria, and uh, I I have had my nose in books since as long as I can remember. I love. I love books. I love reading. I like, I love connecting with other readers and we know it's a niche group of people who enjoy reading. And then also a niche group inside that group of readers who enjoys reading what you also enjoy reading. So it can be hard to find your tribe. Um, and 
I have always loved books. It was an escape kind of for me, and it was a way to learn more about the world. And as I got older, I, I really got into wanting to share uh, or, or start to write and share stories. And so I am an indie author, and I do create uh, book reviews on YouTube through my channel called It's Too Late to Apologize Book Reviews. And uh, I've been really enjoying connecting with people and and uh, other readers. And it's been really fun. And it's been, it's, it's taken my reading into a completely different area that it never had gone before, really much more critical and, and, and uh, thought centered and, and really mindful reading as opposed to uh, as opposed to what I was doing before, not that what I was doing before was necessarily a bad thing, but, you know, sometimes you'd get to the end of the year and you don't really remember what you were reading. And I found uh, reviewing books really changed how I saw books, which was great. So, And how long has your YouTube channel been up? Well, I originally started it uh, back when BookTube sort of was in its early foundling years uh at about two, 2014 i had started my channel and i really had no idea what i was doing <laughs> it was uh so i just kind of i came on and i would uh share my opinions on books and my reading was a lot different then than it was now and as i think a mm -hmm. lot of readers find they their their tastes change through their life mm -hmm. and so i was uh i was reading and i was coming on and I, I don't, I didn't feel like I was giving people much that they were just getting from themselves. Like I felt I wasn't, I wasn't doing the best I could. I, I, so it didn't do very well. And so I sort of gave up on it. And then about a year ago now, actually, I thought, you know, why don't I try this again? And I had a, I had a very much different place of where I was in my reading life and where I was, uh, as a writer also. And so I thought, you know, you know what I really enjoy when I watch a book review is knowing like a deeper dive into that book or what the content is about and less about if the person reading it really enjoyed it or didn't enjoy it. I mean, that's important to a certain degree, but what the meat of the book was about. So that really made me think like, you know, you could be better at this, at, at reviewing books and thinking about books. And so uh, I, I kind of went back into reviewing books and, and putting them on YouTube. And I actually write a little essay about each of the books before I do a review, because I find I'm a very abstract thinker. And sometimes I, I form an opinion without really understanding how I formed that opinion. And then so I it was a sort of really interesting journey between really examining closely what I was reading and uh, and trying to share that with other people. And it's it's really enriched my reading experience and I'm really enjoying it. That's so cool. I, I highly appreciate that you take that much thought into each review because you are right. There are a lot of reviews out there who are frankly just opinions and they're just summarizing what's kind of on the back of the book. And it's true. You're absolutely right. If it's not adding to what people are already knowing or thinking about the book, then there's no value in the review. So you taking it that seriously is pretty awesome. Now you call it, it's too late to apologize. Yeah. Where did that come from? <laughs> so it's uh, the, like, it's a really long handle. So like, if you go to my page, the whole title is it's too late to apologize for how much fiction I consume. <laughs> that's, that's uh, what the whole title is. But I'm like, it's a little long. It's a little long. So I'm like, yeah, I'll just like cut it a little shorter. And then uh, it's also a really great song from, what was that, the 2000s era? It was a great song, too. <laughs> it's a song? Yeah. I think it was by Timberland back in his, the Timberland era. He, he sampled that one, but it, it's good. <laughs> okay, well, I have to listen to that song. That sounds like a song that's probably right up my alley, but that is hilarious that you call it that. So I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. So if anybody wants to go, as you all should to listen to Stella's reviews and get a little more meat out of the books, I will put a link down there so you can click on it. You can go right to it. And it's changed how you read. So how has it changed the way you choose books or look at books that you're reading now? Um, I still, I feel like 
where my reading tastes have changed, where I started in 2014 with my re- my channel, I was reading a lot of YA and at the and there's nothing wrong with YA. I have no problems with YA. And I feel like I was coming out at, at that time. I was doing a lot of uh, school and really like heavy thought things. And I was I was writing my first uh, my first novel. And so I really was looking for light sort of diverting reads. And so YA or some of the, a lot of the YA was great for that. Not that that's what all Y is. And then so as time went by, I feel like now I, I really found the sort of hole in my reading experience or life where I was missing a lot of classics. And my family is, uh, they emigrated from Portugal. So there's also this sort of gap between what was culturally normal, like what everyone knew the classics were. And my parents, you know, they came from another country. So that wasn't what they knew of or passed along to me or, and so there was sort of this gap. And I, I found like, I was really hungry to sort of fill this gap of of reading because there, the, the great thing about the classics is they're referenced so much in other works. And yes. if you don't, and if you haven't read that, you're sort of missing part of the richness of that experience, even in movies and uh, music and all that kind of stuff. And so um, what I found really changed was when I was looking to do this like deeper dive and really dissect the, the meat of the book, I really ended up going towards classics because sometimes a lot of diverting reads, it's really hard to get into really deep sort of archetypal uh, human experiences. Um, not that that's impossible, but a lot of the classics and in literature, it's uh, there, there's so much more to dissect, you know? And mm-hmm. so I was, that was what I was really interested. Uh, I guess I sort of just followed that carrot down that road. <laughs> and what were some classics that you especially liked? Um, uh, one of my early favorites that sort of, I think, changed uh, how I was reading was 1984, Slaughterhouse-Five. I love Slaughterhouse-Five. It's such a strange, weird thing. And it just, I, it spoke to me in ways that I hadn't really encountered before. Is that Uh, one by Kurt Vonnegut? Yes. Yeah. Kurt Vonnegut. What is it about? I have never read that one. It, I am not going to do it any justice in my explanation. And you're going to be like... (laughs) What? So it's, <laughs> it's it's semi-autobiographical about Kurt Vonnegut's experience in World War II and about the firebombing of Dresden. And uh, it was this devastating experience that a lot of people don't uh, know about because uh, sort of swallowed up in World War II, people think more so about the dropping of the atomic bombs and the destruction and, and havoc that those bombs caused. And, it, and they did. Let's. Uh, I'm not trying to minimize that at all. But uh, the bombing of Dresden uh, was not done, was done with typical uh, typical bombing payloads that they were using at the time, uh, and in a very very classic uh, use of them. And it literally flattened and obliterated this town, which was not a really huge strategic point for Germany. And it decimated this town, left it in absolute ruin, and. I forget what the statistic was, but it actually killed uh, more people in that town than it than I think the Hiroshima bomb did, which is sort of crazy. But anyway, so uh, Kurt Vonnegut was actually in this town when this bombing happened, and it's so it's about the, the character uh, that he writes. It's sort of about him, and he's dealing with post traumatic stress, and uh, the way that his character understands the the trauma that he's experienced during war is. His, I think, what how I perceive it is his PTSD flashbacks happen in the form of aliens abducting his body and uh, sending him to this what zoo, this human zoo in space somewhere, uh, where aliens can observe him, and it, and it, it was about him getting unstuck in time where he could travel back and forth in moments of his his life without his control, and I think that's a big. Uh, PTSD marker of like, you know, not being, having triggers and then traveling to past memories and not really feeling like you have control of that for yourself because of these triggers. And so it was this really interesting thing, but he thinks he perceives it to be aliens. And of course there's a lot of debate is like, is it aliens or is it all in his mind? And, and it was, it was so interesting and I'd never read anything like it. And you would consider it science fiction potentially. And 
but it was this it was so like deep and almost satire-esque at certain times when dealing with really serious topics. And I I, I love that novel. I feel like I really need to read it again and do like a review. I was years ago that I read it, but it's so good. Huh. I had no idea that there were those elements in that book. I've seen it a number of times, but it's never jumped out at me and I've never sought it out for any reason. But that is very intriguing. Yeah. And it it takes... It takes this very unromantic look at war and because after the war, there was a lot of romantic, as any war, there can be a lot of romanticism wrapped up in it. Kurt Vonnegut didn't have that take on it. And if anything, it was seen as sort of an anti-war novel. And uh, he wrote it in time when people, um, men were coming back from Vietnam and there was this very uh, negative perception uh, in the U.S. about the Vietnam War. And so vets were coming back and were getting very negative responses from the public. And so he, I think, wrote that novel too, to sort of connect with the vets coming back who felt like they weren't heroes, you know, that after World War II, everyone was considered a hero when they came back, but Vietnam had a very different feel to it. And so it's really intriguing, just the the historical context of when that novel was written and, and what the author was going through. And I find that stuff endlessly interesting. And how does something like that contribute to you as a writer? putting things down on paper and getting your thoughts and your own experiences into your story? Uh, I think it, it, sometimes it's hard to know where, like, cause everything you've read sort of contributes to what you do as a writer, but it's hard to sort of quantify where the lines blur, uh, where one thing has made you go in a certain way. But I have always been really drawn to, war movies and, and and novels and books about war and not in a, a romanticized fashion. I think a, a lot of people think that that's the, the take that um, people who enjoy war novels and movies think, but I really like the historical context of them. But I also, it makes me really grateful for the life I get to live now. History accounts uh, do that for me now. Like you look at where humanity has come from. And I'm just like, wow, this is so amazing. This, this time that we get to live in right now, it's, it's hard to put into words how amazing realizing how good we have it right now is. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I really liked that the direction that Kurt Vonnegut with, went with post-traumatic stress and my, one of the characters in my novel, one of the main characters in Across the Wire, she is struggling with post-traumatic stress also. And it's a complex thing to navigate. And I wanted to try to do it some sort of justice. And so I hope I had, (laughs) I hope I did. Well, you opened the door. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about Across the Wire. This is your first book? Yes, my first novel. And we have happily had it on the shelves almost since we opened, I think. So tell us a little bit about that book, the impetus to write it and Um, what it was like to write it. Give us kind of an overview of that. Because a lot of people who read are curious about writing and a lot of um, budding writers are very, very excited about other writers and their process. So yeah, tell us a little bit about what that was like. Uh, it It was really interesting. I found myself at a point, personally, I was working a job uh, that I really invested a lot of my personal, a lot of energy into. It was a creative sort of job. Uh, I was an artistic director for a company and uh, for the whole Canadian region. So I traveled a lot. So I found myself uh, alone in hotel rooms for a lot of, a lot of time. And uh, what ended up happening was my, my father passed and he, it was such a, a huge moment as anyone, it would be for anybody. And it really sort of made me stop and evaluate what I was doing with my time and how I was spending my time. And I found this huge urge to start writing. It's sort of hard to explain because I had loved reading for so long and I had dabbled a little bit into creative writing earlier uh, in my life, but I had sort of not really uh, pursued it any further. And then uh, this story started building in my mind and then which often did, like I'll, I'll have stories running through my mind all the time, but then it just started getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and more characters and longer. And, and I was like, it started consuming so much of my thought space that I, I thought, okay, I just need to write this down so I can just get it out of my head and move on. And then 
I didn't know, I had no idea what I was doing. So I, I would sit down and I would just like write a few pages a day and then keep going. And then I just thought I just need to get it out. And then it just kept, it kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then, and then, so I started thinking, okay, well, I guess I'll write a book now. Uh, I don't know. I, here we go. And, um, and it was sort of this very cathartic way of dealing with the the passing of my father and realizing that this is something that I always wanted to do, but I wasn't giving it the time that I should have been because I was so um, wrapped up in other aspects of my life. My father's passing really made me think about what I should be spending my time on because it's fleeting, right? And so, mm-hmm. um, and then so it, it took me on this this journey of of writing and trying to uh, find uh, sources of information. And and this was this was a long time ago now uh, that when I began writing that it, there wasn't so much like now you can find a lot of content about how to publish and how to uh, self publish and how to write. And, but then it was a lot harder to find a writing community. Also, it was, it was a lot more difficult. And so I found a writing community online through um, a website called critique circle. It's actually a really, a really good asset for writers who are looking for other writers in similar genres, uh, looking for people to critique and look critically at their work who don't know them. Cause oftentimes, you know, you'll get a friend to read your work or something, but they're going to be too nice. They're not going to tell you <laughs> what needs to be told. You know, they're not going to tell you this doesn't work and this character's weird. And this, this dialogue's trash and this, I don't know what's going on over here and this plot, (laughs) this plot's not working. And, you know, they're not going to tell you all those things. They're going to be like, oh, this was really great. I'm like, no, no, give, tell me what sucks, you know, and I can take it. I can take it. And, you know, in the beginning, you think you can take it. And it's very, it's very hard to hear criticism. And also, so the other great thing about finding a writing community is, um, hearing constructive criticism that's targeted to improving something rather than just like trolls. Trolls don't help, especially in the beginning when you're when you're trying to understand this art form that you are pursuing. It's hard to to delineate what is helpful and what isn't because it's it's really hard to have a gauge on your own skill level anyways. So be able to connect with authors like all over the world and get your material reviewed. And then also it's a, it's a credit system. So you need to review other authors works also and, and reviewing and looking at other people's writing really improves your own writing. Also, it's a really great asset for, for people who are interested in writing. That takes an awful lot of time and effort and focus because amongst all of this, you still have a life and you still have responsibilities and things that are demanding your attention. And so how do you carve out time to get this creative passion, this, this story that's in your head? How do you carve out time to make that part of your routine? It's a really great question that I don't know if I figured it out properly. Because <laughs> I'm sure as, as you know, when you wear so many hats, you're, you try to find a balance. I don't know if you ever find the perfect balance. It's always you have to sway one way for a little time. And then you're like, Oh, I'm too far this way. I need to go back this way and and readjust. It's like constant readjusting. Yeah, it it can be really difficult because now that I work sort of shift work, I work 12 hour days, and I work night shifts. Also, um, it doesn't leave much opportunity on a daily basis to be creative and write because by the time you get enough sleep, you do your job, you come home, you cook dinner, you do some chores, I got to go to sleep again. So there's, there's no, there's not a lot of time. So then uh, all on my days off, I need to try to get regular life done, like go grocery shopping and do laundry and, and all those glamorous things that we all enjoy doing every day, live your life every day. And then you have other, you have family, you, you have relationships in your life that you need to maintain. And, you know, it's, so it's just like doing the best you can. I'm a slow writer. There's some people who have amazing productivity and and that's amazing. Like everybody's different and it's important to not compare yourself to how everybody else is doing and just Mm -hmm. stick to what you can do and, and, and chip away at it slowly because you, you are making progress. It just, it just takes time. I think that's so freeing though, because exactly what you're saying, it's true not to compare to anybody else's routine or system or, their format for getting it from their head onto the page. Everybody's different, but I think so many people do compare themselves 
to that story of somebody who is just diligent, saying no to all the things, and they only do this one thing, and they're and then they're like, well, I guess I can't do that. I have a job. I have kids. I have life. I can't. I don't know how to get that done. So I guess I just won't. Right. And it's not like that. You can chip away at it in whatever way is conducive to you still doing the things that you have to do for your life. Yeah. It's not even just a hobby. It's a creative outlet. But I think that however you do that is also going to be creative. It could be on your phone. It could be in notebooks in your car. It could be on an iPad at a coffee shop before an appointment. It could be whatever. Maybe you're taking weekends away on a regular basis and you're just like hammering it out with no sleep, whatever. But I think that you're very right in saying that everybody does it differently. So to give permission to people to say, however you're doing it, at least you're doing it. Exactly. And I I forget who said it, but comparison is the thief of joy, right? So it's, you have no idea what that person is dealing with in the background, right? You have no idea what their personal life is. You can't judge it based on like, oh, I clearly... I'm not giving enough time to this thing or that person. It's just easy for that person. It's like, well, you have no idea what that person is struggling with, you know? So just keep eyes on your own prize. Keep your focus where it needs to be. And, you know, because writing is very solitary. It's a very solitary endeavor. And so it can feel really lonely. Like you're by yourself and you need to be by yourself without distractions. When you're constantly being up- interrupted, it's really hard to fall back into that flow of writing again. Um, mm-hmm. It is. It really is. And so uh, because it's such a solitary endeavor, like it's really important to still have connection to people and to your life and other things you enjoy doing because that feeds the well of your creativity also and doesn't allow it to go dry. And So you had this story that was brewing in your head. You were processing your dad's loss and you knew that getting this down was necessary because where else is it going to go? It can't just stay in your head. Right. And so you finally get it down. You have this great creative community that you are going back and forth with to help assess. And now you're going to publish it. That's also a big decision. It really is. Yeah. And and what was that process like for you? For a lot of people who don't understand the publishing industry. And of course, it's it's so huge. And there's so many different ways to go about it. Um, I really tried to go the traditional route being through um, a main a publishing company uh, to distribute it do the distribution for me. Uh, So the first step in that is to find a literary agent. And so what this involves is writing a query letter, sending it to agents that you've researched who would cater to your specific genre and the niche of uh, story that you are telling and to pretty much cold call them with this letter. Uh, and this letter is, it is, has to be such a finely crafted tuned thing. That's about 250 words. Shouldn't go more than that. It needs to get to the meat of what you're trying to say, give enough of the story away, but not too much, make it interesting, but make, make sure that they understand exactly what it's about. And it's it's a very difficult thing to even just write that letter. There's so much writing on that letter. So then you query, uh, you send this letter out to several agents, uh, you know, however many agents you can find, and then comes the rejection. And, and every writer has experienced mass Rejection on a scale that is hard to imagine. (laughs) So then what should happen if you go the traditional route is you eventually um, find a literary agent who is interested in your work. They will ask for possibly the first few chapters. They'll read if they're interested. They will ask for the entire manuscript. And then after sometimes what can take, I I was waiting for some literary agents to get back to me for over a year for over a year just to hear whether or not they might have interest in it after they've requested manuscripts or partials. After that, then the agent will uh, send you a contract if they do want to represent you. And then they have to go through the exact same process with publishers. So they write and craft a letter to send to publishers. Most of the big publishers uh, won't accept any material if it's not from a literary agent. So you have to go through a literary agent. Um, Some small presses will uh, deal with authors directly, but most won't. And so then the literary agent will, on your behalf, send uh, their letter to publishers and then goes through the same process of them requesting maybe the first few chapters, then possibly requesting a manuscript. Again, it goes through 
uh, their whole system. And again, that can take a while. And if that is successful, then they will offer a contract to the writer. And, and we're talking about fiction, the, the process of publishing fiction. Nonfiction is actually quite different. And then after that happens, um, if, if you're lucky enough to have that happen, uh, the publisher then has control of your the rights to your property, your property being your your story. And then it goes through an editing process through their editors, and they may request you to make lots of changes to your story, to change the direction or change um, any multiple number of things. And of course, as a writer, you either can accept those or, or decide against them. Your contract might be contingent on those changes. And then, uh, and then it eventually goes to publication. And that publication, when it goes to be published, you have no control over as an author either. Oftentimes you have no control over the cover. You have no control over how it's marketed. You don't have much control at all. I mean, it, an exciting process, I'm sure, for, for writers who, who go into it. But even still, if you do go through traditional publishing, it, there's very few writers who can actually make a career out of writing full time because it's the publishing industry is very selective about what it chooses to publish because they have to do the marketing for it. And there is a lot of money that is expensed in pushing and marketing your novel. So yeah. it is understandable that they do need to be selective. But then on the flip side of that, the, the negative part of that is that you get very formulaic sort of novels. And as a reader, you can, you can see a lot of trends in publishing because one thing will take off and then publishers will sort of zero in on that and want to find more like that. And then what you end up having is so much of the same thing because that seems to be what's working in the industry at that given time. Right. Sort of like movies, right? So now we find ourselves in a lot of reboots of old franchises and, and things because there's not a lot of fresh material, it seems, because mm -hmm. there's so much money involved in the industry and in putting that that work out. Wow, so you yeah. have to be incredibly patient, wildly diligent, and you have to believe in your book and the process so much that you're going to continue to push and ask and wait and deal with the rejection and then continue again and again until until there's a bite on your line. Yes. I can see why so many people don't pursue it because it would just weed out the people who don't have what it takes to continue fighting for it. Yes. And and there is there can be perceived this sort of elitism with it also, right? Which I think there is some truth to that, but I, there's also some untruths to that because to go traditional publishing route, it, it can be thought as a, a sort of stamp of of quality. Whereas I'm sure we've We've all read uh, something that's been traditionally published that we can agree was possibly not the quality we had expected. Yes, um, our store has shelves of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and um, and so it can be seen as the, a stamp of quality, uh, whereas independent publishing can suffer from being seen as some, like a, a subpar product. As with everything, it's it, it's not necessarily indicative of the entire everything that you can find under that umbrella. Not all works that are published traditionally are necessarily guaranteed to be perfect or guaranteed to be good. But then there's also the flip side of independent publishing where possibly a lot of the work isn't as edited as it possibly could be. And maybe the, the due diligence hasn't potentially been done. And so, the, you know, both things are true. You are just passionate enough and creative enough and persistent enough that you are going to do this a second time. You have another book, right? Yes, I'm, I'm working on it. We're, I, it's currently in the stage of I've completed the first draft. I'm going through revisions uh, and rewrites right now. And so there's a big revision process that I'm still working through. And it's, uh, as always, it's always a, a struggle because it's this when you sit down to write a book, it's there sort of this like battle you're about to wage with yourself, <laughs> like you, which sounds ridiculous, but you start writing something and then you'll, you'll come to like um, something that doesn't work. And you're like, this doesn't work. I need to figure out how to make this work. And then you'll stop and it'll just be this block and you'll sit and you'll think about it and you'll think about it. And it doesn't look like you're writing anything, but, or that you're working on your writing, but really it's just your brain trying to figure out how to make this, this, obstacle work. And, mm -hmm. and so a lot of writing doesn't look like writing, but it is writing. <laughs> You're like, I need to go for a walk. I need to, I, and my husband will be like, I thought you were writing. I'm like, I I'm trying to, 
<laughs> it's in my head. It's all it's in my in, head. It's in my head. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and so I've been working on it and it's been, this last year has been a bit of a struggle with, um, you know, with COVID. Uh, I mean, it's been the last two years. The first year I found I had this huge surge in productivity because I'm a bit of a hermit as a lot of readers can be and, and writers also. And so I found this moment of like, okay, well, we can't go anywhere. I'm going to do this. And I was like, had so much productivity. And then this last year, um, especially with work and, and covering uh, pe- for people who have been sick, I've been working a lot more than I normally do. And it's sort of, um, it's it sort of stalled for a little, mm-hmm. uh, for a bit here. And I'm uh, going to, I'm getting back into uh, the revising and revisions, but I had to sort of take a break. And so then I ended up funneling my energy into uh, instead working on uh, my reviews for um, it's too late to apologize book reviews on YouTube. So I instead uh, funneled my energy into that with smaller writing uh, essays or smaller essays that I could write and feel like I was still accomplishing something. But overall, uh, working on a novel can take so long, it can sometimes feel like you're not getting anywhere. And uh, yeah, no, I I get that. The (laughs) one day you can have just so much enthusiasm and time and you feel like, man, you are getting it done. And then tick, nothing is really going on for a while. And, and that's okay. That ebb and flow of creativity and the balance of life. And then there's the pandemic, right? Like, I mean, there's, there's all these things that are knocking at the door, trying to get your attention and yeah. Yeah. Well, good for you for continuing to press on and see the revisions through. Cause really the revisions is sort of like rewriting your book a little bit each time. And so you do it once and that's hard enough. That's that's already a big feat. Most people have on their bucket list, they would like to write one book. Well, when you revise and do the edits, as if you're rewriting it over and over. So you continue to revisit. So good yeah. for you for all of your diligence and perseverance with that. I admire it. Well done. Oh, thank you. I think sometimes too, if for, for someone who hasn't written something to the length of like a novel, uh, and especially like the, the genre that I write in is speculative science fiction and, and and that so the it's long it's long works uh and so it's a very different process to to set down the first draft than it is to go back and revise they're com- two completely different processes and i find at least in my own writing experience and it's different for everybody i find that the meat of the time is in revisions i find mm-hmm. like 80 mm-hmm. percent of that time sink is in revisions and and yeah. revising and and fleshing things out and, and making sure the story is where I want it to be. It's the same for podcasts. We do the interview and then more time is spent on the edits after and the production pieces than the actual conversation itself. So yeah, I, I totally get that. It is. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it, no one sees that work. So I, I understand completely on that side of, you know, you film a book review, a video book review, and then you go and you edit the film the footage and uh, tweak the sound and yeah. and all those sort of things. And that takes so much longer than the actual filming process. And so, and, and it's, it's work that no one sees. And so it's true. It's true, but it means you're dedicated enough to have it done right. And that is something that readers do appreciate from local authors who take that time to make sure that the edits, that the story themes, that the, everything flows well, that it is, it's well presented this is the best version of this story that this author can provide. And I think yeah. that's one of the rewarding things as a reader is to re- read an actual local author piece that has had all of that attention to it. It just feels extra special because when you've created anything, you're right. The behind the scenes stuff that nobody sees, you can tell. Like when somebody has cooked a recipe, they could either have reheated that in the microwave and you will know. Or they could take the same idea and they could start from scratch and they could build all the flavors completely different. You can still call it the same dish, but it is not the same dish. (laughs) And I think that um, the attention you pay is definitely something that is valuable. And as a bookseller, I'm so grateful for the attention that you paid to that because then I know that the readers who choose to pay for that book are going to get something that has been well attended to. And that matters to me. So I'm very grateful for that from my end. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Now, and as a booktuber, is it, would you say you're a YouTuber or a booktuber? How does that work? Well, I guess you're technically both, but okay. within the YouTube 
universe, uh, <laughs> and YouTube universe, there's different niches. So there's, you know, there's, there's foodies and there's, there's, uh, you know, people who do renos. And so the book community or book reviewers, they call themselves booktubers. And so I okay. guess. Okay. So as a booktuber, you have to do reviews. So you're reading a lot of books. So can you tell us uh, about some of the books that you have been reading, whether they are good or not, doesn't matter. We don't care. We're not judging your opinion on it. What are some books that stand out that you can tell us about? So this last year in my reading, there were some, I, there were some amazing reads. Uh, so one, one of the books that really stands out at the top of my head was uh, Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. I don't know if you've read Blood Meridian. No. It is quite, it is possibly one of the most violent novels I've ever read in my entire life. And, but it was, it has also sort of become like one of the most profound novels that I've read of the year because it tackles such a ugly portion of history. Um, so Blood Meridian uh, takes place on the southern border of Mexico in the U.S. after the Mexican War. It was about this band of um, mercenaries who were hired by the Mexican government and Mex Mexican authorities to rid Mexico of the Apache uh, who were uh, living on in the land at the time um, because the Apache were very violent in attacking, attacking uh, towns. And so it, it's sort of this very violent look at the past and it's based on true events. There's so much violence and um, it, it's this huge metaphor with mankind and their relationship with God and chaos and war, Lucifer. And it was executed in such a great way that it really made you think deeply about the motivations, what makes a person good, what makes a person bad. It was a really profound book that I read and it was amazing. And it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody, uh, but it was, it was amazing. Uh, another really great book um, that I read was Jane Eyre this year. I actually, I had read Weathering Heights years ago and I disliked it so much at the time that I read it that it, it totally turned me off the Bronte sisters altogether. And, uh, and then, but I was like, you know what, I'm gonna, I had finished, finally finished my challenge of reading all of Jane Austen this year. And so I was like, you know what, now we need to go tackle the Brontes. Uh, and so I started with Jane Eyre and I absolutely loved that novel so yeah. much on so many levels. And it was so complex and it was amazing. I'm, have you read Jane Eyre? You're yes. sort of nodding and yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I always find that Jane Eyre is kind of magnificent because it's almost like it's two different stories. There's a story of her when she's younger and, and that desperation that she feels and she goes to school as a student and growing up and, and then it kind of breaks when she's an adult and she has her own mature life as a teacher. And, and, you know, and so there's that, the love piece of that. And then there's all the curious dark elements that go on with it, but it feels like two different books. And yeah. I've often marveled at how well she balances those two. Yeah, I would even argue it feels like three books, right? Because there's that mm. portion at the beginning where she's young, uh, her adolescence, and then she's, you know, coming into her own as an adult. And then, and there's this romance aspect in there. And then she, she, spoiler alert. And then she turns away from romance. And then there's this portion after where she's, you know, she says no. And then she's on this like whole other portion. And I feel like that section of the book is like a completely other book also that's true that's true and so her her trying to find purpose and happiness in a life that's full of suffering and she's mm -hmm. she's experienced so much suffering you know and a lot of people call it a romance like I find a lot of people focus on the romantic aspects of it but I don't think it's a romance at all if anything Me either it's a coming of age story or a building's Roman as they would call it. And I really love that because oftentimes, and it, and it was so ahead of its time, oftentimes female characters or stories are told through the lens of romance. And, and that's okay if it is, that's all right. But there, there's so much more to it also that can be explored. And I feel Jane Eyre did such a great job of that so long ago. I love Jane Eyre. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's also such an extraordinary book to pull apart, whether you're studying it for school or you really are pulling out the meaty bits, as you call it, for like a book club or for a discussion or a YouTube channel or whatever. I think it's one of those great books that has so much to chew on. Yes. And doesn't matter, like, doesn't matter what's going on in the world. We can be as modern as high tech and whatever's the basic humanity elements of suffering and growth and development and love and belonging and 
it's still there. And it's, yeah, it is a wonderful story. Yeah. There's so many levels to that book. Uh, and also another book that I read for the first time this year that I loved, uh, it was Frankenstein. I loved, oh, yeah. loved Frankenstein. So good. Again, so many levels that you can dissect that novel. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Was there? Oh, I also have this uh, challenge that um, I have this like Shakespeare project that I'm working on that I'm trying to trying to work my way through all of his works. And because, you know, at school, when I was in school, like we re- I read Romeo and Juliet, uh, Twelfth Night, and Othello. Those were the three that we covered in high school. Sure. And beyond that, I never really, I never really read all that much more. And Shakespeare's work was so influential. I mean, even if you're not a reader, you understand how influential Shakespeare is. And I was really disgusted with myself that I hadn't read his like lesser known works or anything else. And so I read about 10 of his plays this year, which was really good progress in the right direction. You know, one of them that I really enjoyed was A Merchant of Venice. That was, yes, I love that play. And it was so many levels and such a short play. And the fact that there's so much to dissect is, is amazing. Another one that I really liked that was I was, the more I thought about it, it kind of hit me after I was thinking about it and less so when I was reading it was Timon of Athens. That was another one that I thought was really interesting. And while I was reading, I'm like, oh, I don't know about this, Will. You know, I don't know about this one, Will. (laughs) But then later I was just sat there with it, thinking about it because my brain couldn't leave it alone and just kept poking at it. And I was like, wow, there's, there's so much to this. Uh, Much Ado About Nothing. That was also another really good one. Yes. Now, to go to an adaptation, have you seen the film version of Much Ado About Nothing? I haven't. Well, it is pretty fabulous. Oh, Kenneth yeah? Branagh does it, and okay. he stars in it, and it has Emma Thompson and a, 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 an incredible cast. But it is so bouncy and so fun, and it has all the elements of Shakespeare that you it's not a tragedy. It's not one of the dark. It's not a royal story. It's it's just this beautiful, bouncy kind of love, comedy, miscommunication, misidentity. Kind of. It, it's so great to see. And Kenneth Branagh's love for Shakespeare definitely comes through because he honors it very well. So yeah, I would I would recommend it. It's fun. Okay, we'll have to have to look at that one. I always try to not watch it something until I've read the till I read the source material. And so now yeah. I can plunge forward with all the Shakespeare play movies that have been done. <laughs> well, and, and that ties into something you were saying earlier about a lot of the classics that you read. A lot of people aren't very aware that they will find familiar elements in those because so many other things after were based on those themes, ideas, characters, quotes, whatever it is. And so once you read the original material, you can go, Hey, I know I've seen that before. Now I know where that comes from. And then you feel like you get to have a seat at the conversation of like classic literature, right? Because it's like little pieces are kind of coming into place for you. And Shakespeare, I find is definitely one of those. So many things have been done based on his work. So when you actually do read him, you go, Oh, I see what they did here. (laughs) I see where that movie came from or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And even like Shakespeare's plays were based on other stories, some historic histories, some other historical contexts. Like uh, one of the plays that I read this year was Troilus and Cressida, and that takes place during the Trojan War. And of course, Mm -hmm. the Odyssey, uh, not the Odyssey, the Iliad is all about the Trojan War. And so we see a lot of the same characters uh, in both of those works. But then Shakespeare takes a very different turn with his characters in Troilus and Cressida. And they're not very honorable and they aren't these mythological characters that we've made in our mind of, of heroism. And, and I feel I, I, on my reading list for this next year is to read uh, the Odyssey and the Iliad and the Aeneid. And I want to read those this year. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how those characters are portrayed. Cause I've, you, we've all seen movies and, and read other stories that use those characters they were first portrayed within the source material also but you have a lot of reading ahead of you those are oh i have so those are not even contemporary fiction those are those are deep deep backlist like original backlist yes yeah that's that's great you're an incredibly diverse reader stella you have a lot (sighs) of stories and ideas and themes on your plate i love that i love that you're not saying this is the one thing i read this is it 
This is my wheelhouse. I'm staying in it. You're broadening your scope. I, I can't help but think that makes you a better writer too. So, I mean, good for you because that's exciting. I, I hope so. And I, I think if anything, oftentimes there can be like this pretentiousness about reading and about literature. And I, I don't feel that way because I feel it doesn't matter what genre you read in. It doesn't matter what, why you read, because everybody reads for different reasons also. And it's not to be judged either. Some people are looking for a nice diverting read, something to escape into, something that um, will engage them. And then other people are looking for a sort of a brain workout, you know, and that's, that's good too. And I, I think it's good to experience as much of that in different ways as you possibly can. I think it's fine to stick in your own genre that you enjoy and stick to what you know and what you know you enjoy. But I think it's really also good to try something that you don't usually try because how do you know you're not going to like it until you try it, right? That's and, totally true. Yeah. And and you can't just judge, you know, uh, you shouldn't just watch one sci-fi movie and be like, oh, I don't like sci-fi because I didn't like that movie. It's like, well, there's so many different sci-fi movies and there's so, it's a large umbrella of possibilities that you're possibly missing just because you might have had one bad experience. And so mm-hmm. I know a lot of people think they're not readers. Uh, people are always like, oh, I don't really read. I'm like, maybe you just haven't found the thing that would mm-hmm. spark your interest, you know? Well, and whatever it is, it keeps you page turning. Like it can be any level of curiosity. It could be a how-to manual. It could be a self-helpy book. It could be a dystopian fiction. It can be YA. It could be romance. It doesn't matter. If it's continuing to keep you curious enough to turn the pages, you're reading. You are a reader. It doesn't mean you have to have read 100 books a year to be a reader either. If you read one, you were a reader. (laughs) Like It's fine. The comparison is the thief of joy quote that you said earlier definitely applies. I don't think that people should be concerned to compare their reading styles, tastes, habits, whatever's with anybody else's. Because especially when the world is hard and the pandemic is absolute full on wonky pants, we have got to give ourselves permission to read whenever, whatever we choose. And that's fine. It's all good. So yeah, I'm all for it. Read whatever read whatever. No two people are going to read the same book. And that's a really fascinating idea. Yeah, it is. And even and you could read the same book differently over different times of your life. Yeah, because right? you're a different person. Yes. yes. Once you come back to that book. And it's a really interesting psychological phenomenon to think about uh, when you're looking at that. Because I mean, I remember the Twilight, the Twilight uh, saga uh, back when it first came out. And I mean, what I think what everyone should really appreciate about Twilight is it got young people into reading in a way that a lot of other series and things didn't like it just like lit up and changed the publishing industry also Oh yeah and so that's amazing but then yeah like with these young young girls and boys who are potentially reading that um you know you sort of want to say well let's think about this mm-hmm. what's what's actually happening mm-hmm. what what is at play with the characters in the book? And and let's think about this and dissect it a little more. And that's what our English teachers back in school were trying to get us to do, right? Yes, they were. They were. That's what they were trying to get us to do, like begrudgingly. They were trying to get <laughs> us to understand. To think critically. To, to think critically. And yeah. a lot of us, you know, it flew over our head back in the day when we didn't enjoy it necessarily. But I always loved English class and all the books that we got to read. Yeah, I used to make... Um, uh, pros and cons lists when I was a counselor. So we would talk about books they loved or characters they loved or characters they hated. And we would talk about um, pros and cons of that character. What were some things about them that you liked, some things that you didn't? Because quite often, uh, especially young people in my office would be very reticent to talk about themselves. They were guarded. They were traumatized. There was There's all sorts of, of stuff that was keeping them in. And so I would use the books and I would get so much about what was valuable to them and what they were afraid of or what they were guarded about based on what they liked and didn't like about these characters. Oh, wow. It was, it was intriguing to me to use that as a tool to unwrap some of the things that were really hindering them having a healthy um, decision-making process or healthy relationships or make better decisions or whatever it was. And characters were 
Amazing. I I mean, I learned so much about what books I wanted to read too, based on the things that they were reading or what they like. So I had to read a lot of stuff they were reading that I was not interested in because when we're talking about them, I need to know. When they're talking about Edward, I need to know like, why is he a thing? So yeah, there's a lot of that, which I think is really helpful. The stuff you're right, the stuff that you do in English class, you can actually apply in your life in so many ways. And it happens now in book clubs. That's what we do. We relate to one another in terms of the books we read, the books we like, what we identified with, what we didn't. And that is how we connect with other humans. So the book never just stays on the page. The characters never, they're never just one dimensional because they do live somehow in our own personal experience through our lens. And I think you're right. That is a magnificent thing that everybody reads a different book. The page, the text on the page is unchanged. And yet it is a completely different experience for every person who takes it in. That's remarkable. That's actually really fascinating to hear you say that you used books to try to, you know, start that personal conversation with teenagers in Mm -hmm. the work that you did prior. Cause that I'm like, wow, that's, that's, that's really interesting technique to, to go about because I find sometimes it could be, uh, I toy with this idea of you can uh, understand so much about a person by understanding what their favorite novel is and, mm-hmm. and how, what that says about you. And, yep. and uh, that's, that's, that's really, that's really amazing. I'm sure you had so many really interesting conversations. Oh, and so many insightful ones because the two biggest um, avenues to have somebody open up to me when they were, really not wanting to talk were books or tattoos because whatever you get tattooed on you is a story and telling somebody that story actually tells a lot about why that was important or what impact that had in your life or whatever it was. And then a book has an emotional space that takes up in your life, in your heart. That's why it stays with you. So they don't just pick a random book that they heard about in school or they saw, they talk about a book that took up space in their heart And if I'm trying to get to what's mattering to their heart, especially a book is just a bridge to get there. And it was such a great conversation. And we always went over time. I got in so much trouble sometimes for (laughs) spending too long with them because we're talking books. (laughs) I'm sorry. And then it feels less threatening. So for anybody out there who's wanting to talk to teens, books and tattoos, this is your avenue. I'm telling you, this is, this is definitely valuable. So yeah, books are special. So what was what was a book that really impacted your young life? Anne of Green Gables. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I think, because it was the first book that made me cry that wasn't dog-related. But it was <laughs> uh, the first character that I really resonated with in terms of she was looking to belong and to feel valued. And all she saw were her own flaws. And all the things that she, there were actually a credit to her character. She felt really separated her from the rest of the world. She didn't know anybody else like her. And she just wanted to belong somewhere, to be necessary, to be special to somebody and not have to change who she was because she didn't ever change who she was. She just wanted to find that right groove and, and find it. And um, then the idea of, of family, like I was like, oh, she has no family. She's like, oh, she's my age. This is this is tragic to me. I was just wounded. And of course, because of that book, we as a family became foster parents. I became a social worker and I wanted to go to PEI to like see where Lucy Maud wrote this incredible story. And, um, and then the older I got, the less I identified with Anne and the more I identified with Marilla because she is incredibly wonderful on her own right um and yeah i've read it a number of times in my life and it continues to be new to me there's something i discover every time that i just did not see before that adds a new layer to what makes that book special to me so some people can read it go eh, you know what it's fine some people didn't like it at all fine lucy Ma doesn't care and doesn't care it doesn't matter yeah right it's all good but to me that was an impactful book and that caused me to read a lot more other books that I wouldn't have chosen otherwise. And did you find that book yourself or was it through school? Like, was it recommended by a teacher or? That's a good question. Uh, I, do, I actually don't have a clue how I found out about that book. It must have been through 
school or something. It wasn't, it was beyond my reading level for school. So it wasn't on our school reading list, but I was always looking at what the grades, they would have it posted in the library, like the recommended reading list for all the grades. And I would just like go through the lists. So I must've, maybe I found it that way. I don't know, but you never know what book that is going to be for a child. It could be, uh, it could be a graphic novel. It could be anything. It could be a fantasy book. It doesn't even matter, but giving them a lot of options means you you extend the risk that they're going to find the most amazing thing, right? Like if you just give them what you think they should have, you're only telling them what is valuable to you. But what if they tell you what they want to read, right? Find out what they're watching. Find out what they're talking about. What videos, what video games are they playing? Then find a book that follows a similar theme. They're already curious about it. Just go with that. Yeah, books are incredible ways to connect with other people. And to tell a story of humanity through a lens that is not your own. Yeah. And definitely. anytime you open a book, you're willing to be empathetic because you're letting somebody else explain to you how they see things. Like you telling your story in Across the Wire, nobody else will tell it like you do. So you are letting people see through your perspective what this story looks like. And they're saying, okay, Stella, I'm here. I'm at your mercy. Just lay it out for me. Tell me what you've got. I mean, that's a very humbling thing for somebody to sit at your feet and say, tell me a story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Like, uh, no pressure to, right? <laughs> as a writer, <laughs> do it right. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so you're part of that legacy of storytellers who actually gets to convey a story to somebody. It could be one that they go, I read this book. You know, I don't, I don't know how I got it, but it's called Across the Wire. And it is so ratty and so beat up because I have read it so many times in my life. They, maybe there's one character that they identify with that is just exactly the character that speaks to them in that moment. You never know. It could be anything, a quote that you write in there. It could be a setting, an environment, a situation. It could be anything, but somebody is willing to take something from it because they trust you. I mean, that's huge. It is. It is. And it's, uh, it's, it's very, very scary as a writer because you want to, you know, cause as a writer, you, you are a reader and, and you love that experience and you want to give that experience to someone else, right? Like that you want to, no one writes a book and it's like, I'm going to make this terrible, you know, like no one, that's not what anybody sets out to do, you know? No. And so you, you want to give the reader the, the feeling that you have when you read your favorite novels and, yeah. or the things that have, you know, spoken to you at, at such a, a deep level, subterranean level of your, your soul, you know, that's what everyone, all writers hope for, you know? And so, yeah. well, thank yeah. you for, for doing it. Thank you for taking the time to write it, to be diligent, to see it through with the literary agents and the publishing process and all of that, headache of the the not fun stuff. Thank you for doing that so that somebody else can sit with and consider your book and let you tell them that story. I mean, that's a, that's a privilege to also read a book written by somebody who spent that kind of time at it. That's all a writer really hopes for is someone is going to pick up their book and have feelings, have feelings about it. You know, (laughs) that's all I could ever ask for. And, and it's independent publishing can be really difficult because it's, it's hard to get your book in front of people. It's hard to, like the internet is so vast and um, to, to be in charge of your own marketing is, is such an expensive and f- fraught process of what works, what doesn't work. It's hard to know what works. It's very much like pouring a, bo- a bucket of water into the ocean. Like it doesn't yeah. even, it's a, it's a drop in the scheme of things. Or try to find the people who your book would even speak to, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a really difficult thing. And I'm really grateful that you bring independent authors works into your store. It's, it's really difficult to find people and bookshops that are open to that. It's mm-hmm. not everybody who is. So thank you for that. You're welcome. It's my pleasure to do it. Thank you for uh, sitting down with me and having this time to tell us about you and all the things that, make your writing life and your reading life extraordinary. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me again. It's been really awesome.
Thank you so much for spending time listening to this conversation today. I hope it was inspiring to you. I hope that if you are somebody who wants to get your story and your ideas down on paper and share it with others, I hope this was a really good tutorial and a good kick in the pants for you to get that done. Um, I'm so grateful to Stella for her creative process and her honesty with sharing what that's like with us because it is a very hard personal slog and she is so dedicated. I am so grateful to have her book on our shelves. And yeah, whatever your place is, you guys, I just really hope that you pursue it with passion. There will always be naysayers, people who want to tell you how you should do it better to suit their agenda, but your creative passion is so entirely your own. So whatever it looks like, be relevant, be generous, and be unforgettable. And may your reading and writing life be extraordinary. Until next time, friends. Bye.